Brothers and sisters, we are reminded by the promises of the gospel that having confessed our sins to, to, the, to God in the name of Christ, we are also forgiven of our sins, and we can stand before Him uh, in, in uh, peace, uh, knowing that we truly are reconciled to Him uh, and do not need to be weighed down by a guilty conscience, for we are who we are in Christ and not in ourselves. Amen. Let's now turn to the Word of God. Our scripture reading this, this morning will begin in Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs 11, we'll read that chapter. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, But the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. With his mouth the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge the righteous are delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors there is safety. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. A gracious woman gets honor, and violent men get riches. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout, is a beautiful woman without discretion. The desire of the righteous ends only in good, the expectation of the wicked in wrath. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Whoever diligently seeks goods seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, 
and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. Proverbs 11, uh, I should mention, uh, Proverbs, we, we noticed a couple of weeks ago, Peter, uh, in, in his work in, in uh, First Peter, which we're going through, has been also uh, quoting here and there from Proverbs uh, chapter 10. And uh, we find a quote in our reading this, after, or this morning from Proverbs 11. And sometimes it's good just to spend time in those chapters to understand uh, what the apostle uh, is also wrestling with in his heart as he writes to the church. So that was the reason for, for Proverbs 11. You'll see a, a number of themes uh, coming back in, in our reading from Peter. Uh, our next reading will come now from uh, Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is the last uh, book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3, verses 1 through 6. Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So far from Malachi. And then finally we'll read a small section from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount, the words of the Lord Jesus. And we'll find Peter is also uh, listening to these verses and wrestling with them as he writes what he writes. Uh, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So far, the reading from God's Word will save our text for a moment later on. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 31, stanzas 7, 10, 11, and 12. text to which we want to pay particular attention this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4, the verses 12 through 19. Let's read those verses. 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So far, the reading of the text. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to begin this morning by reading an excerpt from the martyrdom of Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was one of the first pastors in the Christian church, a disciple of of John, Uh, so he was discipled by by the Apostle John. Um, He was a pastor of the church at Smyrna. Uh, And and, uh, here in what we've read from Peter, Peter tells us, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you. Uh, and and the, the martyrdom of Polycarp shows a, a little bit of what that fiery trial was like. Uh, Polycarp, he was an elderly man by the time that he was uh, arrested uh, in the year 155. He was 86 years old at that time. Now the writer who records his death writes as follows, When Polycarp first heard that he was sought for, He was in no measure disturbed, but resolved to stay in the city of Smyrna. However, in deference to the wishes of many, he was persuaded to leave it. He departed, therefore, to a country house not far distant from the city. There he stayed with a few friends, engaged in nothing else night and day than praying for all men and for the churches throughout the world, according to his usual custom. And while he was praying, a vision presented itself to him three days before he was taken, And behold, the pillow under his head seemed to be on fire. Upon this, turning to those who were with him, he said to them prophetically, I must be burnt alive. When those who sought for him were at hand, he departed to another dwelling, whither his pursuers immediately came after him. And when they found him not, they seized upon two youths that were there, one of whom, being subjected to torture, confessed. It was thus impossible that he should stay hidden, since those that betrayed him were of his own household. His pursuers then, along with horsemen, and taking the youth with them, went forth at supper time on the day of the preparation with their usual weapons, as if going out against a robber. And having come about evening to the place where he was, they found him lying in the upper room of a certain little house, from which he might have escaped into another place. But he refused, saying, Now the will of God be done. So when he heard that they had come, he went down and spoke with them. And as those that were present marveled at his age and constancy, some of them said, Was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? Immediately then, in that very hour, he ordered that something to eat and drink be set before them, as much indeed as they cared for, while he besought them to allow him an hour to pray without disturbance. 
And on their giving him leave, he stood and prayed, being full of the grace of God, so that he could not cease for two full hours to the astonishment of those who heard him, insomuch that many began to repent that they had come forth against so godly and venerable an old man. Now as soon as he had finished praying, having made mention of all that had at any time made contact with him, both small and great, illustrious and obscure, as well as the whole Catholic Church throughout the world, The time of his departure now having arrived, they set him upon a donkey and conducted him into the city, the day being that of the great Sabbath. And the Ironarch Herod, accompanied by his father Nicetes, both riding in a chariot, met him. And taking him up into the chariot, they seated themselves beside him and endeavored to persuade him, saying, What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and in sacrificing with the other ceremonies observed on such occasions, and so secure your safety? But he at first gave them no answer. And when they continued to urge him, he said, I shall not do as you advise me. So they, having no hope of persuading him, began to speak bitter words unto him, and cast him with violence out of the chariot, insomuch that, in getting down from the carriage, he dislocated his leg by the fall. But without being disturbed, and as if suffering nothing, he went eagerly forward with all haste, and was conducted to the stadium where the tumult was so great that there was no possibility of being heard. Now, as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show yourself a man, O Polycarp. No one who saw who who it was uh, that spoke to him, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was indeed taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect to your old age, and other similar things according to their custom, such as, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, Away with the atheists. Christians at that time were called atheists. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance, countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen then in the stadium and waving his hand toward them while with groans he looked up to heaven and said away indeed with the atheists then the proconsul urging him and saying swear and i will set you at liberty reproach christ polycarp declared eighty and six years have i served him and never did he never he did me any injury how then can i blaspheme my king and savior And when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since you are vainly urgent, that as you say I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and pretend not to know what and who I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day, and you shall hear them. The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast you, unless you repent. But he answered, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to to adopt what is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. But again the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beasts, if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. 
Well, the writer then describes how uh, the crowds then proceeded to debate about whether they were going to kill Polycarp by wild beasts or by fire, and in the end they chose to burn him alive. He describes how they hurried to gather wood for the fire. They tied the old man up. And the pastor then offered a prayer to God, giving thanks that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ and to share in Christ's resurrection. And the moment he said, Amen, they set the pile on fire. Well, the text that we have from Peter is written about 80 to 90 years earlier, about the same age of Polycarp, perhaps the year that this man was born. And Peter here, he's writing to the scattered, persecuted Christian churches who were just now beginning to experience the the hatred and the mistreatment of the surrounding culture. Uh, Both Jews uh, who hated them and Romans who hated them. And Peter tells them, do not be surprised now at the fiery trial that has come upon you. Now, we've dealt with this a little bit before already in Peter. It's been a recurring theme, the, the, the suffering and persecution that the church faces. But Peter wants to address this one last time yet in his letter. And so we should uh, prepare ourselves to hear uh, what he has to say yet one more time. Uh, what he wants uh, to remind us of is really the same thing he said in chapter 1. If you're being grieved, he says in chapter 1, by various trials, it's for the testing and refining of your faith. Uh, because your faith is more precious than gold in the sight of God. And it's something God is determined to refine, to make pure. So don't be surprised that you go through trials. Don't be surprised that God is refining you. So again, then, Peter now reminds these Christians, do not be surprised at the fiery trials, but receive them as given for the purification of your faith. As we reflect on what the church endured then, uh, 2,000 years ago, we can hopefully recognize for our part what a necessary reminder this is also for us in our time. You know, here in the West, we've enjoyed a a fair degree of, of freedom to be able to worship God without opposition uh, but we need to recognize that our experience here in the West really is the, the exception to the rule. It is not the norm. Uh, for most of history and most parts of the world, the church has not enjoyed this kind of freedom. Uh, and so Peter does remind us, don't be surprised if that freedom is lost. Don't, don't, don't be upset if suddenly you discover the culture hates you. That's the norm. That's what you should expect. Well, the reality is Christians in the West do tend to be surprised uh, when we're mistreated because of our faith. We do act like like something strange is is happening to us. Uh, It's why we we sometimes post videos of mistreatment against Christians uh, in the West. Uh, We post them on social media with with total outrage. How How can people treat us like this? It's not fair. Well, Peter says, yeah, go figure. Uh, you, You should have seen that coming. Don't be surprised. This is really what the Lord Jesus taught his disciples as well. John 15, uh, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word they would also keep yours. That's what the Apostle Paul also reminded the young pastor Timothy. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. 
And so then Peter, too, reminds these Christians, don't, don't be surprised as if something strange is happening. Uh, and, and then in, in this last section, uh, then devoted to this topic, Peter uses this, this opportunity to impress upon these Christians uh, several important lessons as they face persecution. And they're, they're lessons that we want to take to heart as well. Uh, in the first place, he urges them to rejoice. He says, don't be surprised, uh, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now this idea of rejoicing in the face of of persecution, it's not anything new, is it? It's what the Lord Jesus uh, also taught us. Peter here is just being a a faithful disciple, one who's been well taught by the Lord Jesus. Uh, We heard that in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when, when people revile you or persecute you for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Peter is really just passing along what he himself has learned from the Lord Jesus. Now, there's nothing, there's nothing natural about that, is there? Rejoicing in the face of persecution and suffering. Uh, and those, those Christians who, who do experience this reality can attest to, to how difficult it really is. It, it does not come natural to rejoice in the face of suffering. Uh, But why would we? Why would we rejoice or be glad? Well, the reason is, as Christ tells us, because your reward is great in heaven. Uh, Your suffering now is a testimony to the fact that you belong to Christ, who was also rejected by the world. And that's a reason to rejoice. You are counted together with Him. And if you're counted with Him in His suffering, you will be counted with Him also in His exaltation, in His uh, reward. You will be glorified with Him. The way Peter says it then is, Rejoice now as you suffer for Him, so that you can also rejoice later. Uh, What he's doing is he's giving us a sense of perspective. Remember uh, remember what's coming. Remember what's at the end of your suffering. Uh, When you're going to be able to look back uh, from a perspective of glory, to look back on these days you're in right now. And, and you want to be able to look back at these days, not as a season of, of, of trial that you wasted because you were upset and complaining, but as a season of trial that you used, that you rejoiced in, looking ahead to when you were going to be able to rejoice later. Uh, The one who has has suffered much for the name of Christ uh, will also have the joy of being able to look back afterwards without regret at the way that God not only sustained him, but also gave him joy during that season of trial. So what Peter's saying then is, learn to rejoice now so that uh, on the day you stand before Christ, you can also rejoice then and do so without regret for the way that you spent this season now. If you allow your sufferings now to become an excuse for sin or, or a, a trigger to, to uh, lash out and to fight back against those who are persecuting you, or if you allow yourself to become bitter or, or angry, you're, you're robbing yourself of the opportunity to rejoice later. When you get to look back on this season, uh, you, you have the opportunity to look back with thankfulness at the way God carried you through. Use this season uh, for that purpose. 
Uh, Peter adds to this as well in, in verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Uh, now, the first part of that, that verse is really a, a direct quotation from the Lord Jesus. Again, blessed are you when others insult you and, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on, on my account. Uh, so again, we get a glimpse of how Peter is being uh, one who's been well discipled by, by the Lord Jesus. Uh, the second part of that verse, it's a bit of a strange expression, isn't it? Uh, uh, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Uh, but it's really not hard to understand when you stop and think about it, what Peter means by the spirit of glory and of God. Uh, the point is, there, there's something glorious, uh, something beautiful uh, about, uh, about a Christian who's willing to endure insults for the sake of Christ and still do so with a spirit of joy, with his eyes fixed on, on heaven and on Christ. Uh, it, what it does is, uh, it testifies to the hope that you have within when you're, when you're insulted, uh, persecuted uh, for the name of Christ, and you respond with joy, it's a testimony to everyone, this is someone who has hope. This is someone who has, who has more than what he has in this world, who has what his persecutors do not have. There's something glorious and beautiful about it. You see that very clearly in the account of Polycarp. Uh, there's a glory in his death, that even his, suf- uh, even his uh, persecutors could not deny. Uh, th- those who arrested him, it says, marveled at his grace and his countenance to the extent that they even uh, repented of the fact that they're chasing after this, this man. And, and they ask, uh, really, was so much effort made to, to capture such a venerable man? Uh, the, the accounts uh, also record, uh, they, they go on to record after his death, uh, that in the years after his, his martyrdom, even many of the pagans who were there and watched the man die and maybe even cheered on his death, uh, continued to speak about him and, and to admit that man died honorably. Uh, his willingness to suffer for Christ left an impression on, on the world. There's a, there's a certain glory in that, uh, that testifies to the Spirit of God at work within him. That's what Peter is saying. If you're insulted, count yourselves blessed, uh, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now that being said, Peter then reminds us again, uh, it's not the first time he's given us this warning, but he reminds us one last time that if we are called to suffer, may it be for the right reasons. Uh, the fact that Peter keeps repeating this uh, to a church that really was suffering badly uh, it may seem insensitive to us that Peter keeps doing that, uh, but at least we should take to heart that if he's willing to say that to the church then, uh, certainly we can take a lesson home to heart uh, for the church today. Uh, while Christians sometimes are accused uh, and insulted falsely and for the name of Christ, it is also possible for Christians to bring that suffering upon themselves as a result of their own conduct. And and Peter really urges us, be discerning about why you are being persecuted, uh, why you you are feeling uh, insulted. Uh, it, It better not be something that you are doing. Now, the first three things that Peter mentions, they're, they're pretty obvious. Uh, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. 
We don't have to assume that Peter actually believed that some of the members of the churches were murderers or thieves or, or evildoers of, of that magnitude. Uh, but under persecution, it's possible to become that, isn't it? You know, when, when, when your family is being attacked, uh, if, if your spouse is taken or your children are taken, it's possible to become that. To become a murderer who's lashing out against your persecutors because of the rage that you hold within your own heart. Peter says, watch out for that. Don't go down that road. But Peter also adds a fourth uh, reason here that might uh, hit closer to home for, for some of us. Uh, and, and grammatically, in the Greek, it's even you can see it in the English too. It, it's kind of separated off from the others. So he says, let none of you suffer as an evildoer, thief, or, or uh, you know, a murderer, thief, or evildoer. And then there's a comma, or as a meddler. So he's kind of drawing our attention to that. It's a unique word he uses, a, a meddler. Uh, it doesn't occur anywhere else in, in the Bible. Uh, but it does occur in other places in, in Greek literature. And, and it refers to someone who, who tends to get into other people's business. Uh, who, uh, in the Greek and Roman culture, there, there, was, there was very high respect for, for the privacy of the home. Uh, a man can run his home as he pleases, and, and his neighbors ought not to get into his, his business. It's interesting, then, that Peter adds that to the list of, of things we, we should be careful not to suffer for. Uh, we can well imagine how, how Christians living in that culture, seeing so much of the immorality in, in that culture, which actually looks a lot like the immorality we see in our own culture, the, the homosexuality, uh, the orgies, the sex parties, uh, were, were commonplace in that culture too. We can well imagine how, how some Christians might have gotten themselves a reputation uh, for, for criticizing other people's lifestyles and, and tending to get themselves into other people's business. And Peter really urges us not to do that. Uh, there is a difference between holding your own convictions and living by them and then giving a reason for them when you're called upon to do so. Uh, if you remember 1 Peter 3, 16 uh, or, or 15, where he says, when you're, when you're called upon, give a reason for the hope that's in you. There's a difference between that, though, and, and sharing your opinion or giving your criticisms when they're not asked for. Uh, when, when you're just meddling in, in someone else's business. Now, Peter, we're going to see later, he quotes from, from Proverbs 11. Uh, but you can tell that Peter's just, he's been soaking in Proverbs 11. He quoted a, 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 a few verses earlier from Proverbs 10, uh, and now he's, he's in Proverbs 11, and you can see that he's been just reflecting on, on some of these same themes. Now listen to some of the things that, that Proverbs 11 also says. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Uh, There's something good about a a Christian who knows when to just be quiet, to just not say anything, uh, to just hold your tongue and, and just wait for the right time and opportunity. 
Now, there can be a time and place for entering into debate. Uh, and, and you see that in the New Testament as well. Uh, you see that with the Apostle Paul when he would debate the, the pagans in the Areopagus. But that was the time and place for it. That's what the Areopagus, the public square, was there for to debate ideas. Uh, and Paul was welcome to come there. People even asked if he could return there so they could debate some more. Uh, But Paul and the other missionaries were very careful to do that in the proper setting. Uh, And and people had had come there to listen to them. Uh, What you don't find is Paul or Barnabas walking through the streets of Athens, uh, just going around denouncing the pagans left and right for their pagan lives. You, You don't find that. They had respect for the proper time and place. Uh, They showed respect for for social protocol. Uh, They took care not to be rude. And that's also then what Peter had told us earlier in in, in chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that's in you. So let them ask you, and then do it with gentleness and respect. Well, we do well to remember that in our culture, too, because let's face it, sometimes we, we can just be rude. And if you're being persecuted for being rude, you're not being persecuted for the name of Christ. Here in North America, uh, Christians love to talk about our right to free speech. And that is a right that we want to fight for and hold on to. Uh, But the point of of having that right is not so that you can be rude. Uh, It doesn't mean you go out of your way to exercise your free speech in the most offensive way just to show that it's technically still legal. That's just not a compelling message that's going to call people to the beauty and goodness of the gospel. Uh, You don't get to say, if, if you're persecuted afterwards, you don't get to say, well, look, I'm suffering now for the name of Christ. You might be suffering for being rude. Uh, so maybe, maybe it surprises us because of, uh, you know, we're often encouraged to get out there and, and evangelize. Uh, but Peter's essentially saying here, mind your own business. Don't get into your neighbor's business. Don't let your suffering be a result of meddling in things that are not your own. Now, of course, we, we should take advantage of opportunities we have to get to know our neighbors, to, to bring them into our lives, uh, and, and if they're willing, to, to, to also be in their lives. But you do that with gentleness and, you, and respect. You do that in the proper time and in the proper way. You don't force yourself upon your neighbors. Uh, we, we shouldn't overlook how often we are actually commanded as Christians to mind our own business. Uh, Paul says it as well in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, verse 10. We urge you, brothers, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So then Peter says the same thing to these Christians. Let let none of you suffer as, uh, of course, a murderer or thief or evildoer, but even also as a meddler doesn't mean you won't be accused of those things. You might still be accused of being a meddler, but at least don't let there be truth to that accusation. But then he goes on, he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, if that's what you're suffering for, do not be ashamed, but then glorify God in that name. That, that is one legitimate insult that you should be proud to wear, to be called a Christian. 
Now, scholars say that actually the name Christian uh, was not a name that Christians had invented for themselves. It was a name that the surrounding culture uh, gave to to Christians. Uh, It was actually first used by pagans as a pejorative term. It, It means little Christ, little Christ. So they're, they're trying to copy their, their little Jesus. Uh, and that was how the Jews and the pagans mocked the Christians. Uh, but ultimately, the Christians decided, that's a, that's a fair term for us. We'll, we'll take that. Uh, we're, we are, we're trying our best to be little Christ. We, we want to look like him. Uh, so they owned that title. And what Peter says is, if you're called that, don't be ashamed. Glorify God in that name. Thirdly, the third thing that Peter wants to impress upon the church during the season of trial, uh, it might also come as a bit of a surprise to us. Peter teaches us that we ought to see in our seasons of trial, in our sufferings, something of the judgment of God. I want to be careful here. But Peter does say, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. The judgment of God begins at the household of God. And what can Peter mean by that? He doesn't mean, of course, that that Christians are in in some measure still uh, going to be punished for for their sin. Uh, That would render the cross of Christ uh, empty and, and meaningless. Now, the scriptures teach very clearly elsewhere that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no judgment left for those who belong to Christ. But what Peter is saying is that the judgment of God is coming on this world, and Christians and the church as a whole is going to feel the heat of that judgment, especially insofar as the church might have cherished some of the very sins that the culture is being judged for. Now, uh, beyond this life, those who are in Christ are safe. There's no punishment beyond this life. But in this life, God does sometimes act in judgment against a particular nation, and the, and the Christians who are within that nation may experience a season of purification for sins that they themselves have shared in. Uh, really, Peter is here is working with uh, uh, an idea you find very often in the Old Testament uh, that, that God often revealed through the prophets that days of judgment are coming and they're going to start with the household of God. They have a double effect. They will judge the nations and punish the nations, but also purify the people of God. They will not destroy them completely, but they will destroy that which is impure among them. Uh, So there is a real warning here. Judgment is coming, and it's going to begin with the church. It's going to begin with the household of God. God said it in Jeremiah uh, chapter 25, verse 29, uh, after describing a great judgment that was coming upon the whole earth, God, God then said, And behold, I will begin to work this disaster at the city that's called by my name. That's where the judgment must begin. God said it as well to, uh, through the prophet Ezekiel uh, as he's speaking to, to the angel of destruction. Uh, and he says, now pass through the city and strike and begin at my sanctuary. Begin with those who serve within the temple. Let them feel the heat of the judgment first. 
It's what we read in, in uh, Malachi as well. Uh, it's a well-known text because of Handel's Messiah, right? The, uh, he, will, he will refine like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. Uh, the judgment of God is coming, and who can endure the day of his coming? Uh, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. That's as close to, to the center of God's people as you get. The sons of Levi, those who serve within the temple. And he will refine them like gold and silver, and then they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Jude and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. And it's the same thing, really, that Jesus said to his own disciples as well, uh, those who lived in Jerusalem, as he described uh, the judgment that was coming on Jerusalem, the fall uh, and destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus warned the disciples, uh, in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be again. Uh, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Uh, There's judgment coming, uh, and the elect are going to feel the heat of it, but God has a limit for them. Uh, His purpose for them is to purify them. His purpose for the world is to punish them. It's quite a frightening uh, thought. Uh, so Peter then has, has reminded us already a number of times that, that we are living in a world that's under God's judgment. Uh, and it is God's purpose then that we, the church, should be the first to feel the heat of that judgment. Uh, it, for us, it is the pur- for, given for the purpose of purifying and sanctifying us. Uh, for the sons of God, it's, it's not a judgment uh, that is intended to punish or to destroy, uh, except to destroy that which is impure within us. Now, now this, by the way, this is not uh, this is not the same thing as the Roman Catholic concept of purgatory. Roman Catholic, uh, their catechism appeals to this text as as a basis for the idea of purgatory, some sort of purifying judgment that takes place after death. Well, Peter's not talking here about uh, something that's going to take place after death. He's writing to them in the midst of their trials right now, saying this, what you're going through right now, is being given by God to purify you. Uh, It's the same thing that that the book of Hebrews uh, also writes about, uh, that when God chastens us in this life, He does so as a father who is disciplining his sons, uh, who's not punishing them as evildoers, but disciplining them that they might mature and grow. And so the point is, is, is this, if judgment is coming upon our nation, uh, which for us too, our, our nation of Canada richly deserves, uh, if that judgment should come upon our nation, we want to recognize as a church, it's going to begin with the household of God. We are going to feel the heat of that judgment. And so let us make sure that we in the church uh, have dealt with whatever sins we need to deal with. If that judgment is, is purifying or uh, refining like, like a fuller's soap uh, to cleanse away that which is impure, let us in the church be in the business of, of dealing with sin 
as soon as we're aware of it, as soon as you know it and see it in your own life, deal with it so it doesn't have to be dealt with later in a way that is more painful, in a way that you feel the heat of God's judgment against your sin. It's what Paul said to the church in in Corinth as well. Uh, if, If we judge ourselves truly, if we take that into our own hands to judge ourselves, then we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's the idea Peter's saying here too. The season of suffering you're going through is given at least in part to purify you, to, to refine you and remove that which is impure, that which is unholy that you may be yet holding on to. Now that being said, there's comfort there too, isn't there? There's comfort in that message because if judgment begins with the household of God and it's given for the church to purify the church, then Peter says, then, then remember, what will be the outcome for those who disobey the word of God, for those who persecute you, for those who, who afflict the church and, and rebel against the word of God, uh, what will be the outcome for them? If, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, uh, and here Peter's quoting from, from Proverbs uh, 11, it's, he's quoting from the Greek translation, so it sounds a bit different than, than what we read in, in English, uh, but uh, it, he says, if it's dif- with difficulty that the righteous is saved, then what will, be, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Uh, so Peter would encourage us then to recognize in our sufferings that as we suffer, we're, we're suffering under the hand of God, who's given these sufferings with a purpose for our good. Uh, the heat that you feel is for your good, for your purification, uh, where, which is very different than, than the heat that the world is going to feel, which is not for their purification, but for their punishment, for their judgment. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that knowledge uh, that that God may be applying the heat to purify us? Why why does Peter write this to the church? Well, what we do with that practically is this. Number one, uh, we make sure that if there are sins that we need purifying from, if there are sins we're aware of that we haven't dealt with, then deal with them now. Confess them to God. Uh, Confess them to one another. Deal with them now so you don't have to deal with them later in a season of suffering where God is, is now refining you because you refused to judge yourself. It's like Psalm 32 says, don't be like the, the horse or mule that needs a, a bit or bridle in order to be corrected. Be a human. Be sensible. Where God convicts you, turn while you, while you know what's wrong in your life, turn, deal with it, so it doesn't have to be done later by force. Uh, and number two, what do we do with that? The, the second thing is, is in verse 19. What it means for us is that if we are called to suffer, and we're able to do so with a clean conscience, like Job, who, who, who not that he's sinless, There's no particular sin that he's suffering for. Uh, There's nothing he's hiding from God in in his life. Uh, then, Then Peter tells us, if that's the case, then you can entrust yourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
Hear that and and take that to heart. Your suffering is not an accident. Uh, Your suffering is not merely the the kingdom of Satan uh, waging war against you or against the kingdom of Christ. It may well be that too. Uh, In in our trials that we experience, we can recognize there there may be the hand of Satan there uh, as well. But even behind the hand of Satan, behind that, there's still the sovereign, perfect, and good hand of God. Uh, Your suffering at the end of the day, for you as a Christian, uh, is according to the will of God. That's what he says. You're suffering because God, dare I say it, wants you to be in that season for your good. He's there to chasten you, to discipline you, to purify you. Uh, And so what do you do? You entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. And notice there the echoes of Psalm uh, 31, uh, also quoted by the Lord Jesus on the cross. Father, in your hands I entrust my spirit. Uh, That's what we as Christians are called to do even in this life. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. One of the Scottish Puritans, a, a uh, Samuel Rutherford, uh, he wrote a letter to a lady in his congregation, uh, a certain Lady Kenmore, uh, one with whom he was quite close, he loved very dearly. Uh, and he wrote to her on the occasion of the death of her child, uh, and, and he said to her, he wrote this, Look now to him who has stricken you at this time. I am persuaded your physician will not slay you, but purge you. For to lance a wound is not to kill, but to cure the patient. I believe that faith will teach you to kiss a striking Lord, and so acknowledge the sovereignty of God. And we might say, isn't, isn't that harsh for, for him to write to, to a woman who's just lost her, her child? Well, perhaps it is a heavy word. Uh, and yet, God is also uh, the one who, who alone can comfort us in our sorrows as we turn our eyes to him, recognizing that uh, his, his lance, as it were, that, that seems to be cutting us open, uh, it's from him. Uh, it is him who is striking us. Uh, he is also the one who can comfort us. Uh, and the knowledge that, that, that our, our sufferings and our sadnesses uh, that we endure in this world are not by accident, uh, but are in fact coming from the hand of our Father who loves us and whose single-minded purpose is to purify us, uh, to refine us and prepare us for glory. Uh, that knowledge frees us from, from all of the endless you know, what-ifs and, and if-onlys, and if only this hadn't happened that way. Uh, what we're taught to do is say, no, this is from the hand of God. Uh, and then we lift our eyes to Christ in heaven. We find our comfort there. And we then can entrust ourselves to our faithful creator while doing good. Let me speak to the young people here uh, in, in particular have you young people learned to do this already? And my observation has been uh, that, that those who learn to entrust their, their souls to God during seasons of, of suffering, they generally learn to do so early on in life. Uh, and it sets for them a certain course and direction uh, in their life that heads towards growth and maturity and wisdom. 
Uh, and, and those who, who don't learn this early on in life uh, oftentimes uh, don't learn it later either. They become bitter or self-absorbed or angry at God or angry at others for having failed them. Well, can, consider what Peter is writing to these churches and remember, he's not writing this as an outsider, but one who, had, who has already learned what it means to suffer and who will at the end of the day be, be, be crucified for being a follower of Christ. Uh, learn what, what he says to these churches. Let those who suffer according to God's will, this is from God, entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing good. Perhaps then, if we learn this while we're young, uh, then, then when we're as old as Polycarp, when, when he was martyred, uh, we, we can demonstrate the same courage and faith to be able to say, as he says, you know, 86 years have I served him, and never did he do any injury to me. How then can I blaspheme my King and Savior? May that be our confession as well. Amen.